You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter number 3, continue in this series closer uh, as John shows us his look at Jesus Christ here. Uh, excited to be able to speak to you again this morning. Uh, a couple things while I turn to that passage, a few announcements. Uh, Brother Nathan will have some announcements later. Um, but coming up, uh, a few uh, important events. First of all, this February the 12th um, is a Saturday evening. We'll be having, uh, during our wellness weekend, um, that Saturday evening we'll be having a soup fellowship afterwards. But we're also having a fundraiser for the teens uh, preparing to go to summer camp. Uh, I like to think about preparing to go to summer camp because then I can think about summer instead of this right now. Um, And so that evening, we'll be doing a dessert auction fundraiser. Uh, And so we have a sign-up sheet out at the guest services table in the lobby. Um, If you'd like to um, perhaps prepare some desserts, um, and then we would take those, auction them off, and then the money raised from that is going to be used to help the teens go to camp. Um, and on that list, just put your name and a phone number and then what you'd plan on making. And you can make more than one dish. Uh, you can make as many as you'd like. Um, just a great opportunity to get involved a little bit, be a help to these teenagers. And that'll be on that Saturday night. And uh, I'll be preparing my auctioneer voice. Um, you say if you preach like you auctioneer, you should be fine. Um, and so uh, looking forward to that. And then also, um, it's hard to think, but we've begun preparing for vacation Bible school. Um, and so we do have a volunteer sign-up sheet out at the guest services table as well. And uh, if you'd like to be involved with that uh, during Vacation Bible School, uh, you'll see the dates are June 20th through the 23rd uh, this year um, from 6 to 8 p.m. each night. Um, we'd love to have as many helpers as possible. And so just put your name on that list, and then uh, we'll be having a meeting here soon about uh, positions and what all is involved there. And if you put your name on that list, it does not lock you in. You can always change your mind. Um, uh, but just to get some information about VBS and so we can get an idea of who um, we have to help us this year. So we're in John chapter number 3. Look with me at verse number 1 here. John chapter 3 and verse number 1, and we'll begin reading there. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, And of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Then jump down to verse number 15. He says, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him 
might be saved. There can be little to no doubt that this section of Scripture is very familiar, probably the most familiar passage of Scripture in, all of, in the entire Bible. And for this morning, we want to take a look at it and look at Jesus as we've been talking about different views of Jesus and talk about this morning, Jesus as the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, Lord. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your son and Lord, all that he means to each of us, Lord. Lord, the love that you had to send him down here and the love that he had to, Lord, willingly go to the cross for each of us. And Lord, the most important decision any of us can make in our life is what we choose to do with that. And so this morning, Lord, as we look at your son, Jesus Christ, and him as Savior, may you help us to Lord, evaluate our own hearts, whether we be saved, Lord. But second of all, Lord, whether you be first place in our lives. Pray that you give me wisdom as I speak, Lord. May you be honored and glorified in all that's said and done and how our hearts respond to this message. It is in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As I said, there can be little to no doubt that this passage of Scripture here, this section in John's Gospel, is the most renowned of, of all Scripture. If I were to ask how many could quote John 3.16, most of us perhaps could raise our hand and say, we know John 3.16. It's the most familiar, probably single verse in all the Bible. And there's good reason for it. I think John 3.16 presents the clearest, simplest statement of the good news, the gospel. The good news that God loves you, first of all, not just you as a whole, but you as an individual. The good news that God's love was so great that he sent his only begotten son, his one and only son, and that anyone that who would believe in God's son would never die, but would forever live with God. And it's an amazing passage here. And here in this passage, we see a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus at this time comes to see Jesus, and he is an important figure, you understand. Nicodemus was a well-learned man, a teacher, a Pharisee, a leader of the, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin at that time. And in many ways, to the average person, this man Nicodemus was what the per, every person wanted to be and every person they thought should be. And so this man Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And there's many theories as to why perhaps he came, whether he was worried about people seeing him or, or if he wanted to just get Jesus' attention by himself. Many theories as to perhaps why he came in the middle of the night, but the conversation Nicodemus has with Jesus, or rather the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, helps us to see Christ as your Savior. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he will only see the kingdom of God, that is to enter into eternal life, and enjoy God's reign if he is born again. You know, it's rare for Jesus to mention the kingdom of God in this gospel, which is interesting. John usually prefers to talk about entering into life here, but Nicodemus assumes that Jesus means something impossible, because you see the questions that Nicodemus asks, that a person must return to his mother's womb and be reborn, and Nicodemus is confused. But the second birth here that Jesus refers to, he says, is from above. It is a spiritual birth he's talking about. And so Jesus shows Nicodemus here that he is indeed the Savior. And for us to have a full understanding of Jesus as a Savior, we see two characteristics that Jesus points out here to us. 
Number one, we see Jesus as the eternal Savior. If you're following there along in your notes, I encourage you to take notes here in the bulletin there. We see Jesus as the eternal Savior. How many of you have ever had to purchase a fridge or freezer before? Raise your hand. Not exactly the most fun process, right? Usually, I think me and my wife usually find them on Facebook Marketplace. You know, they're going to break down quick enough, so no point in spending a lot of money. But I remember a couple years back, we talked about wanting to get a new fridge and freezer. And when you're getting one, the first thing or the most important thing you begin to think about is, should we get one with or without an ice maker, right? I mean, should I make ice or not? Should it dispense ice or should it not? Because the fact is, I don't know if this is for you, but it is for me. Anytime we have an ice maker, it breaks. It's the first thing to go. If not, if you have a dispenser, that dispenser somehow goes. I know in our freezer that we have now, the ice maker works, but the dispenser doesn't. We have a, I have a washcloth just kind of pounded into the dispenser hole to keep it from all melting and coming out the dispenser instead. And so we have a scoop that we get our ice out with. And so we always think, you know, what is the point of getting an ice maker? Because it's the first thing that always goes. It's the first thing that always breaks. If you have a dispenser for ice, that breaks. If you have the ice maker, it breaks. What's amazing here and the idea of Jesus being eternal is that we have a Savior that is eternal. He is forever and forever. Letter A there in your notes, if you're taking notes, letter A is eternal life. Look at verse number 15. It says, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, it's amazing. If all of the Bible were to be lost or destroyed except for John 3.16, someone would have more than enough information to be converted. And just one simple verse about eternal life. We see in this passage the words everlasting life, born again, or he says born of the Spirit here, all used in reference to something that Nicodemus did not have. Nicodemus had not experienced this eternal life that Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus was spiritual, yes. Nicodemus was intelligent, yes. Nicodemus was respected by many people, yes. But Nicodemus did not have this eternal life that Jesus was talking about here. See, when we're born, we're all born into sin, right? Nobody had to teach you how to sin. I have a one and a half year old that I did not have to teach how to yell and throw fits and take things he's not supposed to have. All of us naturally do that. I have other children. I never had to teach any of them how to lie. All right, now listen, Timothy, when you take a cookie and you're not supposed to have it, when I ask you about it, what you're going to say is, no, dad, I've never taken any cookies in my life. I never had to teach him to lie. I never had to teach anyone to lie. We naturally lie, don't we? And that word there is natural because we are born into sin. Listen, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We are under the power of sin. We are slaves to sin when we're born into this world. I cannot help but sin because a sinner, I don't know any better. You know, it's amazing to me, an off point, sometimes we expect the world to behave like Christians, don't we? You know, I can't believe so-and-so does that. Well, they don't know Christ. They've never been changed and transformed. How do we expect them to behave any differently? We're born as sinners. And so here when Jesus is talking about this radical change, this birth here, 
unless one is born again. It's a radical and fundamental change that must take place in every individual's heart and life, including this man Nicodemus that he's talking about here. The unfortunate reality is that this term born again, I think has been stolen and wrongly appropriated in the world that we live in today and has been emptied a lot of its true meaning. Much as when God gave the rainbow as a promise, that's been distorted. This idea of being born again has as well. Today, the term born again has been used to define a number of things. A person gets a new job and they say they've been born again or some athletes who ended a career in one sport and jumped perhaps back in or changed to a new sport says they've been born again. Or when they picked up and started competing, they'd be born again. Or someone says they've been born again when they change uh, their identity or their gender. This term born again has been distorted to mean so many different things when in fact Christ is talking about one specific thing here. This new birth and this eternal life that Jesus is talking about is a total change of one's past one's present, and one's future. It's a change that you are no longer under the penalty of sin when you're born again. You're no longer under the presence of sin in the, in the present. You, know, you don't have to be a slave and fall into that sin over and over. You can be an overcomer instead. And praise God, one day in the future, we no longer have to face the presence of sin at all. It is a total change in one's past, and one's present, and one's future. Revelation 21 says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the heavens saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And listen to this. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. When we have eternal life through Jesus Christ, we have a future to look forward to. Eternal life is not some moment where we find a new identity or we get a new job. It is a changing of one's past, one's present, and one's future. It means that one day you and others who have called upon the name of Christ will be able to sit around the throne of God and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You know, I love when we sang this morning. How many times we talked about worthy is the lamb? And when we enter into heaven one day, we can bow before God and truly praise him, not just for 10 minutes during worship, 10 minutes during our songs, but forever. And we have that to look forward to, eternal life. Forever and ever and ever. You know, I thought about how to, how to illustrate eternity, because it's a hard thing to understand, right? You know, we live for 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe if we're fortunate, 100 years here on this earth. And if I were to take this room and to start at that window over there, and walk all the way over to that wall over there, your life in comparison would just be this small blip of what we live here on earth. And we have somewhere that we will be forever. We have a plan of life and worship and praise 
and no sadness, no sin that will last forever. We see here, Jesus talks about eternal life. That's what we have to look forward to. When Christ comes into our heart, when we accept what he's done upon the cross for us, we have that eternal life to look forward to. But what's amazing is this. It doesn't just begin when we get to heaven. You know, that would be great, right? When we get into heaven, all of a sudden, everything is perfect, and it will be. But you know, eternal life, everlasting life begins right now. Now, is everything perfect right now? I don't think it's hard to look around and say, obviously not. But God changes your life and changes your perspective to where there's a hope, to where there's a, a, a realization that this world here is not my home. I'm just passing through. And Christ speaks to Nicodemus here as the eternal Savior of the Savior forever and ever and presents to him eternal life that lasts forever. And here's the beauty of it is this. When I say eternal life, Another aspect of that is this, you cannot lose your salvation. How many of us, perhaps when we're young, we accept Christ and get saved, and as perhaps we turn into a teenager, and as sometimes we do as teenagers, we begin to perhaps fall away from the Lord a little bit, and we begin to wonder, am I really saved? Am I still saved? And we realize that our salvation, your salvation, does not depend upon anything that you do. It depends upon what Christ already did. And so this teaching that you can do certain things or not do certain things to lose your salvation, if I could put it simply, that's a lie. Our salvation is secured in what Jesus Christ has done for us already. And so Jesus presents the idea of eternal life, but he also talks about this, eternal condemnation. Look at verse number 18. He says this, he says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. To truly appreciate the fact that you are saved, as an amazing thing as that is, you have to realize what you've been saved from, right? You have to realize what could have been the consequences. Verse 18 says, He that believeth not is condemned already. Verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds we're evil. Friend, not to accept Jesus Christ and what he's done for you is to face condemnation in a terrible place called hell. You know, it's amazing in this world, and I wanted to look up a statistic, but there's a large percentage of this world that for some reason believes in heaven, but does not believe in hell. Friend, if one is true because scripture says so, the other is true as well. And what the world thinks hell is going to be some large party where all of their friends get together and have a good time is in fact a lie. There is an eternal condemnation that is associated with not accepting Christ. In the book of Mark, Christ describes the place as this, a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. In the book of Luke, we read about Lazarus and the rich man. You remember the story as it takes place. And when the rich man opens his eyes, the Bible says he is in torments. A man that lived wealthily on this world and enjoyed everything that he could imagine, and that he opens up his eyes and is in torments. And part of the condemnation is this. You will recall every opportunity you had to accept Christ. And what a sad thing that is to, so number one, be apart from God forever. 
but to recall every opportunity you had to change your past, present, and future. Eternal life is precious because we could have faced, and at one point all of us faced, eternal condemnation. Some people ask this question, how can a loving God send somebody to a terrible place called hell? And that's a great question. Many people ask that question. The fact is this. Number one, God did not create hell for us. God created hell specifically for those fallen angels who had disobeyed and rebelled against him. But listen, it is not God that sends you or I or anyone else to hell. It is our sin. It's our sin and our lack of obedience to his word to accept what Christ has done and paid the penalty for that already. That is what sends us to this eternal condemnation. We have an eternal Savior that's offered us eternal life so that we do not have to face eternal condemnation. Let's take a look at verse number 31 and see the other characteristic here of Jesus the Savior. Look at verse number 31. It says, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him." We see, number one, an eternal Savior, but number two, a superior Savior. You know, the world is all about superlatives nowadays, right? You know, who has the fastest car? Who built the tallest building? And who has the fastest computer? And who has the best this? We have a, medic, a magazine dedicated to tracking the richest people in the world. The world is all about superlatives, the best this, the best that. And it's great to strive to be the best in many things. But can I tell you this morning, we have a superior Savior, what do I mean by that? John 14, 6 says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, he not only is superior as the Savior, but he is the only Savior. This world wants us to begin thinking that there are so many different ways we can get to heaven. Heaven is like this mountain where you, know, you can get up to the peak in many different ways, and you have your path, and I have my path, but God makes it very clear, Christ makes it clear, there is only one way, there is only one Savior, and it is Jesus Christ, the Lord. We see letter A, his superior testimony. Letter A, his superior testimony. If I were to survey this room around here and have you tell stories of perhaps children that were born and different interesting stories about, you know, maybe perhaps you've heard of children that were born in cars and, you know, crazy situations um, that could happen. We would probably hear a, a myriad of stories of amazing things that took place and, and some interesting testimonies. I remember uh, with our uh, third child, Matthew, I think was probably one of the more interesting ones where um, at the time, uh, because of health reasons, uh, my wife was considered high risk, and so we couldn't have uh, Matthew here in Worcester where we wanted to um, because it was closer. So they sent us to Fairview, all the way up there, um, to have Matthew there. And so I remember we went up to the hospital, and um, we were there for a while, and you know, 
it wasn't progressing like they were hoping it would. And I remember her, some of her parents had come up and they were sitting in the waiting room probably wondering, you know, when's this going to happen? Like, this is the third one. This should be like a 15-minute thing, right? And, um, you know, sitting there and, you know, of course they make her walk up and down the, uh, the, aisle, the hallways and stuff like that. And I stand 15 feet behind her and make little jokes and she can't stand me. Um, <laughs> and we get to the point where they say, okay, listen, you can either decide to be checked into the hospital and we'll see how long this takes, or you can go home. And it was just a difficult situation where you didn't really know what to do. And so I remember we kind of packed all of our stuff up and went home. And they said, you know, hey, whenever things start to happen, go ahead and come back. Like, we're going to make it all the way back to Fairview, right? And I remember, so we went home uh, that morning and got some sleep. And I remember that evening we went to bed. And um, it was towards, I think, probably close to the middle of the night, I think, where um, we were trying to sleep. And uh, she was in pain, and, you know, she wouldn't let me sleep. She was really inconsiderate of that. Uh, no. Um, and I remember just uh, her being in immense pain and feeling like, you know, she wasn't feeling very good. She was feeling sick at that point. And luckily, her mom had come over, and so we went to, we knew we weren't going to make it back to Fairview. Like, that, that wasn't happening. I'm not going to have the car, and the, you know, baby in the car story going on. And so we went to Worcester. And um, when we got there, Matthew was born within 15 minutes, which was funny because we thought, you know, hey, we told you we wanted to have the baby in Worcester, so we're going to have the baby in Worcester. It ended up there anyways. Um, but just sharing that story, I remember, um, you know, we got her in there, and I went back to the car to get bags and things like that and the camera and so on and so forth. And I remember being so frazzled in the whole situation that I think I did a whole lap around the entire hospital before I realized, like, the car was right outside the door, you know? Um, <laughs> And some of us have different testimonies like that, salvation testimonies. Some of us in here have an amazing testimony of how we got saved. You ever hear someone talk about their salvation testimony and you think, wow, I wish I had a testimony like that. Like, you know, they were into terrible things or, you know, they were living their life wrong or, you know, they, they had almost lost their life and they got saved and think so cool of that. When in fact, what's amazing I've heard so many times is the testimony of someone that said, hey, I got saved at four or five or six years old and I've never had to face any of those things. But a testimony is something that is so important to us, is it not? Something that is, takes years to build and yet so easily can be changed and destroyed. And here we see the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 31, he says, He that cometh from above is above all. Christ alone has his origin in the providence of heaven. The testimony that is that Jesus Christ is not just some mere human. He alone is infinitely superior to any other created thing and superior to all mankind. To think about in this passage, John the Baptist, well-known man who preached that Christ was coming, was of the earth, right? Was a human being. John the disciple, as he writes this passage, was a human being here as well. And all mankind is earthly, limited, and finite, and Jesus here is absolutely preeminent and infinite. What makes him above all is that his origin is of heaven and is of eternity. A new birth here that he talks about from God originates where? It says from above. This new birth that Jesus talks about originates in God's existence, not an earthly existence. It's not about being reborn here on earth, but it is a spiritual rebirth. Jesus has a testimony of living and being born from or coming from an eternal existence in a wonderful place called heaven. You know, if you want to learn something and learn it well, it's best if you do it by firsthand experience, right? 
I'm not sure about you, but I'm a hands-on learner. If I'm going to figure out how to do something well, I need to do it multiple times, but I need to have first-hand experience. It's not enough for me just to tell me how to do it, and then I become an expert at it. It's from doing it over and over and over. And you in here have skills that you've developed from doing it firsthand. Some of you in here as ladies, you know, you can crochet or to sew because you've done it firsthand. You've done it multiple times and a practice here. If you want to do something well, you do it through firsthand experience. Christ alone knew truth by his own experience. He didn't have to learn about the truth, get this, because he is truth. He didn't have to go to some, to some place and have to read all these books about what truth is because he is truth. The very words that come from his mouth are truth. Jesus doesn't present to us uh, some hypothesis or, or idea to discuss whether we agree with him or not, or if what he teaches is a good idea, Jesus teaches what he knows to be true because he's heard it and experienced it in heaven. And to have that testimony is superior to anything that we could ever come up with. Listen, to the pastors and the preachers that come up to this stand, if what we say, if what they say does not line up with what the word of God says, throw out what we say. You know, I emphasize this to the teens so often. I think pastor emphasizes it well. When you come to church, bring a Bible. Why is that? Well, number one, it just makes sense. But number two, because we want you to see it for yourself. We want you to see it firsthand with your own two eyes that when you look at that passage, as pastor says, this is what this passage means, you say, okay, I see that, and then you accept it. Truth is Christ. Christ is Truth. Everything he says is supremely reliable and trustworthy. And here's what's amazing, though. Even though that is true, most of humanity will not receive the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most reliable testimony anyone could ever have, and yet many will not receive it. Look at verse number 32. It says, And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. Most of humanity will not truly believe the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we experience that when we witness to others, because here's why they cannot. Natural man cannot accept Christ's witness because the natural man, without a birth from above, without God's spirit of enlightenment, will not accept or understand the deep things that belong to God. Why can they not seem to understand the word of God as we share it? Because they cannot. The natural man cannot receive those things and understand those without the enlightenment of God and his Holy Spirit. Jesus has a superior testimony. But then look in verse number 33. It says, He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Letter B, he's superior in his testimony, but he also is superior truth. Superior truth. Receiving the testimony of Christ, of Jesus, is, is a decisive action where a person accepts the entirety, all of what Jesus says, recognizing his heavenly origin, his divine nature, and the truth of God as revealed in his word and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, I was reading about in, in the Eastern tradition, Middle Eastern and Eastern tradition, when you placed your seal on a document, you attested to the truth of that document. Hey, this document that I'm sealing, 
I accept this as truth. Whether it be your last will and testament, surrendering everything that belonged to you to someone else, so it's the same when you receive God's testimony and you set your seal to it. You surrender to God body and soul and spirit and possessions to him for his use. And surrender, understand this, is a 100% thing. You know, we use that word surrender. You know, I've surrendered this to God and I've surrendered that to God. But how many times do we attribute some other percentage? And I'm speaking to myself here as well. Well, God, I'm going to give you everything of mine, except I'm kind of going to keep this to myself because, you know, that, that's a sensitive area. Or, you know, I, I just have a, a desire with this. And God, I give, for honest, many times we say most of my life to you. And to put the seal, to say that it is truth, is to surrender it all over to God. God is the God of truth. Jesus is the truth. Truth is rooted in the very character of God himself. As the scripture says, God cannot tell a lie because it's outside of his character. All that Jesus spoke are the words from God, and so all of Christ's testimony is always in perfect agreement with God's testimony. It always lines up. Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father, their testimony and their words always line up. Faith solely and confidently rests on the promises and the work of God in Christ. To believe the gospel is nothing else than to agree to the truths which God has already revealed to us in his word. Faith relies on God and confirms to his words, for there cannot be any agreement unless God has first of all come forward and spoken by his word and spirit to regenerate that sin-dead heart, that heart that was bound in wickedness and in sin. And so faith is distinguished from all human inventions. Faith, if I could put it this way, does not make sense. You know, if you've ever had a chance to, to go down to uh, Kentucky, you perhaps have seen uh, the Creation Museum or perhaps the Ark Encounter, and they explore and talk about the importance of God's Word really lining up with, for many times, scientists, what they've thought for years, and many times proving science wrong. And many times the world teaches this idea of evolution or that Christianity is not science. It's just, it's just empty faith. And yet they pretend that believing that everything that we see around us happened over billions and billions of years does not require faith as well. The difference is, is that is a blind faith, and yet we have a faith that we can trust in based upon the word of God, which is truth. Superior truth from God. Look at verse number 36. He says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You know, it's interesting as I looked at this verse and I began to study it out, it's in the present tense based on the Greek. Now, I don't know a lot of Greek, and that's why we have computers nowadays. Someone once said, I know a little Greek, he has a gyro stand, and then somebody maybe call it a gyro. <laughs> but this idea of this being in the present tense, it's a continuous verb. In other words, it's an ongoing thing. What he's saying here in this passage is this. It means continual, ongoing eternal life, or continual, ongoing condemnation. 
In other words, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. It is a continual thing that begins when you make that decision and lasts into eternity. He that believeth not on the Son is in condemnation at that moment and will continue to be on that path of condemnation and continue to be condemned. The Bible says to love the world is to be at enmity with God, to literally go against God. When I was in eighth grade, um, I played football, and I remember I weighed 100 pounds soaking wet. I remember I could not play football in seventh grade because I didn't weigh enough, right? That's, that's how big I was. And I remember during practice, we would have think, uh, something called a hamburger drill, and unfortunately, it did not involve ketchup, mustard, pickles, and cheese. What they would do is they would give, each side would have two people. One person would be the lineman, one person would be the running back, and then on the other side you have a lineman and a linebacker, so to speak. And um, they would call hike, and you would choose which way to run, and you had to get through two pads, and you had to try to get through uh, either way. And I remember uh, me being that little itty-bitty guy, uh, having the football, and on the other side, the person that played the linebacker um, was a gentleman that uh, played varsity football uh, his freshman year and actually played line at Northwestern University. So to say that he was big would be a little bit of an understatement. And I remember holding the football thinking, this is it, like, this is it, Lord, I'm coming to you, kind of. <laughs> and I remember they blew the whistle, and, and I ran the ball, and I remember he, I mean, to say that he hit me, uh, I think I went back a couple years probably when he hit me, and just, he hit me, wrapped up, laid on top of me, and it should have been a pancake drill, I think, instead of a hamburger drill, because that's what I felt like at that moment. And I thought, man, like, I wish I would have been on his side, like, on his team. Like, hey, you do the tackling, I'll watch you as long as you're not tackling me. The word enmity literally means facing against. It has the idea of you're coming this way and I'm going that way, and there's going to be a collision in the middle. Let me ask you this. If you had to choose one person to be at enmity with, do you think the best choice would be God? <laughs> Not at all. The condemnation and the punishment and the consequences that go along with that, be, uh, what I faced being tackled pale in comparison. And to have eternal condemnation from a holy, perfect, righteous, loving God is something that no one will ever look forward to. And the word of God says here is to not believe on Christ and what he's done for us is to face eternal condemnation. Man once said this, he who continually believes in the Son continually dwells in a state of eternal life with God, of which time is not a measure. That person makes obedience to the will of God, particularly in receiving the Son, a lifestyle, living, trusting, walking, obeying the Savior. On the other hand, he who continually remains in a perpetual state of unbelief will continually reject the Son and makes this rebellion his lifestyle. The unbeliever will never realize life in the Son, and so the wrath of God will continually remain on him on an ongoing, eternal basis. The ongoing state of unbelief is accompanied by an ongoing state of the abiding wrath of God. And it's something that lasts forever. And it is truth. You cannot get away with that. As someone once said, truth does not care about your feelings. Well, that's not fair. It's still true. Well, I don't like the way that that's supposed to go. Well, that's still true. Well, I don't understand it. 
it's still truth. And Jesus is our Savior and is superior, and his truth is superior. The line, King David, turn over to Psalm 16 with me real quick if you would. The wrath of God is God's fixed and necessary hostility against sin. See, because God is holy, he is rigidly opposed to every single thing that is evil, and his eternal wrath will remain on that and on unrepentant sinners. The Bible teaches there is one and only one true God who has revealed himself as creator. And King David in this passage here knew what it was like to be saved from the wrath of God. He knew what it was like to be in Christ. Look at Psalm 16 and verse number 6. He says, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And then verse 11, he says this, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And King David knew both sides of the coin, what it was like to be under the condemnation of God and what it was like to experience that eternal life and that loving hand of God guiding him on a daily basis. You see those words in verse 11, present fullness of joy, the path of life, pleasures forevermore. And that is what it is to accept Christ as Savior. You know, it was interesting as, as I was reading and preparing this passage for study, um, we were preparing the bulletin. And um, you'll see the bulletin usually will put like a, a picture on the front, and it's usually whatever we use for the slides, and then a key verse um, for uh, the passage. And of course, you know, uh, doing John 3, um, I thought my first thought was this What can I do to not use John 3.16? It's like, I'm like, everybody knows that verse. I'm like, that would be like the cop out, you know? Like, you know, my, like my two-year-old would be like, you use John 3, 16, Dad. Like, that's what you should use. And I thought, how can I get away from using that and use some other verse to very convey the exact same thing? And the fact was, as I began to read and began to study and began to look at it more, it is the center of all the gospel. It is the center of who Jesus Christ is. He's our Savior. And he's our savior so that we can experience eternal life that lasts forever so that we do not have to face eternal condemnation. What a relief that is that one day I was destined for a terrible place called hell full of torments where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched and yet Christ saw fit to die upon a cross for me when I didn't deserve it so that I could have not just a so-so life but eternal life. Are, are things perfect here on earth? No, absolutely not. But I have my hope in something that is so much greater than anything here on earth. And so I have that eternal Savior, but I have that superior Savior. This world offers so many things that try to give hope, and yet nobody does it like Christ. And he is truth. 
when I look at his word, when I read his word, I don't have to question it. You know, it's interesting, as you go through school as a child, you have teachers that teach, whether it be history or different things, and later on in life you realize, maybe perhaps some of them taught it from a different angle, maybe their perspective, and you're like, maybe these things weren't necessarily true. And yet as I read God's word, I think, man, my perspective has been off. And I can align myself with truth that is unquestionable. And a righteous, holy God has saved me through his son, Jesus Christ, giving me an an inexpressible joy, as well as the message of the gospel to share. We have a savior that is eternal, a salvation that is eternal. We have a savior who is superior. And my question for this morning is this, have you accepted Christ as your savior? Number two, are you treating him as a superior savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word, Lord.